Let It Low Paid at Large, I'm Let It Low Paid. In his latest book, Preparing for War, University of San Francisco religion scholar Bradley Onishi makes the case that the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol was not a blip or an aberration, but the logical outcome of years of a subculture of white evangelicals preparing for war. It's published by Broadly Books and brings Dr. Bradley Onishi to our show now. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. You speak of the new religious right. How do you define it? And when did it, was it new? Yeah, well, you know, as you know, there's been a lot of new right uh, labels over the last 50, 60 years. Uh, there's always seemingly a new right emerging. Uh, you know, for me, I, I wanted to to really give people a history that showed that uh, starting in, in the, the 1960s, there was a coalescence of two movements that uh, are really important for where we are today. One of them was was people who called themselves the new right. Uh, these were veterans of Barry Goldwater's presidential campaign in 1964, and they really wanted to institute what they saw as a new generation of conservatism that embraced extremism. That then coalesced with the religious right, uh, the moral majority of, of Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell. And so for me, when you have the two together, you have the new religious right, and they form a very powerful political and religious engine that uh, is still chugging today. What about the John Birch Society, which was founded in 1958? The John did, Birch Society, Did religious yeah. thinking play any role in the Birch Society's ideology? Very much so. Uh, it's a little bit understated, and it's it's always less emphasized, because when we talk about the John Birch Society, we're talking about what is ostensibly a vehemently anti-communist organization. Uh, however, uh, mixed into that, uh, as many people will be familiar with, were uh, conspiracy theories. Everything from the idea that Earl Warren, the Supreme Court Justice, was a Soviet uh, agent, as well as perhaps Dwight Eisenhower, and of course, Martin Luther King Jr. And they were all that. Well, not that I have found, uh, but you know, I'm going to keep looking, you know what I mean? So <laughs> um, if I find anything, I'll let everyone know. But, uh, you know, what was what was built in there for me, uh, in my work, and what I found is uh, a real dynamism with the emerging libertarian, entrepreneurial and individualist Christianity that uh, took root in the mid-20th century. And so that form of religion mixed with the Birch Society's anti-communism and conspiracy theories was really a match made in heaven. And it, it propelled uh, Goldwater to the nomination in 64 in many ways and continues to reverberate in our politics now. You say that you were once a Christian nationalist. What did that mean for your life at the time? I converted at a at a mega church in Southern California when I was 14. And uh, I became somebody who, uh, by the time he was 20, was married and a full-time minister and uh, attending a, a, a Christian college and then a seminary. My church was not overtly political. It was not the kind of church where, uh, you know, we would attend political rallies or you heard uh, sermons uh, about certain political candidates at the at the pulpit. But it was a church where the American flag and the Christian flag were always seen together. Uh, it was uh, it was a place. My hometown is the, the hometown of Richard Nixon. And, you know, Richard Nixon was famously a Quaker. Well, that was my church. His church is my church. But that Quakerism was stripped of all of its pacifism, all of its emphasis on social justice and egalitarianism. And it was given this 
generic evangelical kind of sheen. So when I went to a prayer meeting on a Tuesday morning, we would have prayer requests from congregants for the police, for the military, for the vanquishing of America, America's enemies, for victory abroad and all of our conflicts, uh, for the renewal of the nation through uh, a return to God and church attendance. We never once had prayers for peace or for tranquility or for any other uh, people groups or nations across the world. And to me, that's a pretty telling sign of the ways that Christian nationalism was baked into our ethos at that church. Uh, this was in Orange County, California, an almost totally white area. Um, was your family at all religious? Your father is a Japanese-American. Wouldn't that have excluded you from uh, being a white Christian nationalist? Well, so my, my father's from Maui, Japanese-American. My mother's white woman from Tennessee. Uh, not religious growing up, uh, but uh, I was invited to church by an, uh, my girlfriend in eighth grade. Uh, and, and in my mind, this was a great way to get out of the house as an eighth grader who uh, was not usually allowed to leave on a weeknight, uh, especially to go see his girlfriend. I thought we would go make out somewhere and, and get away from the Bible study. Uh, I converted, however, and became somebody who was wholly devoted to this faith and what I learned to do at that church as a mixed race person was really to background my Asian American identity. It, it's not that people of color were not allowed. It's just that they were not allowed to bring all of themselves into the space, their culture, their food, their dress, their rituals, their holidays. Those needed to really be left behind. And as long as you were willing to kind of subscribe, not only to the to the religious dimensions, but the cultural dimensions, then it was totally great that you were there. And in fact, it was a nice way for the the congregation to convince itself that it was in fact not racist or not exclusionary. And look, we have all these uh, these, you know, token folks here who are mixed race or people of color. And that proves something about us. So I learned to do that from a very uh, early days in that church. But you say, and I'm quoting, race has everything to do with how Christian nationalism is constructed and lived out. It does. And so just if I speak personally, I learned to view my Asian American, my Japanese American family, uh, its food, its rituals, its holidays as other, as suspect, and as something that was probably not on the side of, of the divine or uh, in part of God's will. You so, had to reject that part of yourself. Very much so. And in leaving that life, I had to really face the internalized racism that I had adopted and the the, the ways that I had internalized self-hatred and, and really hatred for my people and my, uh, my extended family. So uh, race is very much a part of it. Uh, and it, it has been part of it for me since I entered, and I've been I've been reckoning with the the kind of results ever since I've left. Because you also talk about the, a purity culture. Purity well, culture, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. No, purity culture is uh, uh, a movement that began in essence in the '80s and really took off in the '90s, and it's it's the kind of evangelical school of thought that says to young people, teenagers. Don't have sex before marriage. Well, that sounds pretty simple. Okay, nothing revolutionary there. But it goes further than that. It says that if you have a sexual thought, you are committing adultery. And so any sexual thought as a 16-year-old boy or 15-year-old girl is adultery. And wow. you should you should repent from that sin. Moreover, uh, 
if you are in some sort of romantic relationship with a high school sweetheart, anything beyond holding hands is probably a bad idea. Um, and uh, so on and so forth. There's also just a, an incredible amount of gender ideology that goes with this gender roles that says men are meant to be authoritative and assertive and in charge and their their uh, their say goes in the household and in the relationship and that women need to be submissive. There's also one further thing here that says that men by nature are savagely sexual and cannot control themselves. So it is the woman's job, the girl's job, but if it's two high school kids to ensure that the relationship stays quote unquote pure, well, which puts undue pressure on young women and, and girls and really sets up men to think of themselves as uh, kind of sexual beings that uh, can have no control over themselves. So in many ways, it's a, a toxic form of thinking and it extends into the nation because you're taught in purity culture that by staying pure in your relationship, not only will you obey God, but you will renew the country. The country will have a sturdy familial foundation of relationships and families that will bring back the America that God wants and that God once knew in the United States. So does banning abortion in a way, is that a punishment for people who have broken those rules? In some sense, uh, I think abortion is seen as uh, the result of relationships that are impure. Uh, you know, if you are unmarried, if you are having an unplanned pregnancy uh, with two people who are not committed to each other, this is seen as an impure relationship. Uh, abortion is also explained as simply uh, murder. Um, it's, it's reduced to a binary that uh, gives anyone who subscribes to that kind of uh, theology, uh, the moral high ground in any conversation, because anyone who is con contesting them is somehow going to be in favor of murder. And so it's a it's a really sly and nimble uh, political maneuver to convince evangelicals and others, uh, Catholics and, and many others, that any talk of abortion is murder. And how could you ever want to murder a child? And so purity, yes, as well as a kind of moral imperative that in many ways is is hard to argue with. One of your chapters is headed, Segregation is a Religious Right. It's, um, they, they're, <laughs> still say, they're still, many people are still promoting the concept of segregation in the United States. So one of the things I, I you know, we just spoke about abortion. And one of the things that I really want to explain to readers is that these days we will hear about abortion as the number one issue for many white Christian voters, whether those are Catholics, whether those are evangelicals, whether those are Pentecostals. And what we'll be told by that group is that this has forever been in God's mind, one of the most heinous sins that one could ever dream of, that abortion is, is a timeless uh, moral issue that uh, is worth uh, one's vote on this very single issue. The story is that abortion has always been uh, at the forefront of, of Christian moral concern and public concern. What I try to show in the book is that if you go back to 1973 in the Roe uh, decision, at that time for white evangelicals and white charismatics in the country, abortion was actually not uh, a, 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 a primary issue. And many white evangelicals were in favor of abortion in some way. In the 1960s, for instance, 
90% of Texas Baptists were in favor of abortion in some form. Prominent presidents of seminaries and theologians made nuanced arguments for abortion uh, in, in certain cases. And so abortion was not the issue that it's made out to be. And in fact, what Randall Balmer, the, the Dartmouth scholar, calls the abortion myth is really something that only takes hold in the, in the, the mid to late 1970s. So the question becomes, well, what really got the new religious right going? What got this engine moving in such a powerful way? And if we do our history, what we realize is that it's the issue of school segregation, that uh, after the 1954 Brown versus Board decision, there were many uh, white Southerners who did not want to send their kids to schools uh, that were integrated. And so we had the advent of thousands of private Christian day schools that were attached to churches. Well, these Christian day schools were, in essence, segregation academies. And you had them all over the South. Uh, in, in counties in Mississippi, there were, uh, there were, you know, at some point in, the, in the, the mid-1960s, four or five white students in certain school districts. Uh, there were school districts in, in Virginia that simply shut down because none of the white students were enrolled. The Christian day school movement was a segregation movement. And at some point, the IRS, and this is all laid out in the book, started to say to these uh, churches and these schools, if you have a segregation policy for your school that is attached to your church, you're going to lose your tax-exempt status. We're not going to give you that status for operating what is, in essence, a segregated school. Well, instead of taking this as a chance to reflect on racism and white supremacy, these churches and their leaders, and this included Jerry Falwell, a name that many people will know, use this as a way to say that the United States government was attacking good old, God-believing American Christians. The backbone of the country, the Americana heart of the nation was under attack by a godless federal government run amok. And if you're going to come for our families and our schools, we're not going to take it anymore and we're going to fight back. My guest on today is Leonard Lopate at large here on WBAI New York, 99.5 of them, streaming live at WBAI.org, is Bradley Onishi. His latest book, Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next, it is published by Broadleaf Books. Well, you say um, that Christian extremists have been willing to, quote, sacrifice the republic in order to save the America they wanted, a nation where white straight Christians maintain power. So sacrifice the republic? I think so. And, and let me let me back up that claim. Um, we have in the, 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 the 1990s, the stalwarts of this new religious right starting to look to non-democratic models in order to learn how they might, in their minds, retake America for God. So Paul Weyrich, who was the architect of the Council for National Policy and the Heritage Foundation and many other uh, right-wing institutions that still uh, play an important factor or play an important role in our politics today, he starts to take these visits to Russia. And this had already been happening, these liaisons uh, between uh, Russia and the Soviet Union and well, the, the former Soviet Union and right-wing leaders. So 
uh, James Dobson's focus on the family had been working there. There's an organization called the World Congress of Families. So going all the way back to the turn of the millennium, you have these right-wing Christian nationalist leaders who are saying to themselves, democracy is not working. There are a rising number of people of color. There are uh, queer folks, lesbian, gay, bisexual folks who are pushing for their rights and representation. Women are entering the workforce in mass and have gained in some sense uh, you know, uh, 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 equal footing or near equal footing, more accurately, uh, in the workplace and in American society. The tides are against us. If we're going to do this by way of democracy, we're going to lose. So instead of trying to win hearts and minds and votes, we're going to look to uh, the burgeoning leader of Vladimir Putin and Russia. We're going to, as the years continue to to turn on and uh, we get to the 2010s, we're going to look to Hungary's Viktor Orban uh, and other leaders who are using, whether it be authoritarian tactics or illiberal tactics, to in essence gain control of their countries, the judicial, the legislative, the cultural, the media. And so what you see emerging is a pattern that says, we believe we're the founders of the country and we believe we have a God-given right to hold power in the country. Do they so, see any similarities between this and what Hitler was saying when he rose to power? They don't see the similarities. Um, but many of us, including myself, who study these things, uh, see the similarities clear as day. Um, because you have a mix of uh, resentment politics. You have a, a mix of uh, blaming the other, whether that be the cultural elite or the religious or racial other or ethnic other for the country's issues. You have a nostalgia for a time that uh, once was and is no longer. So the mix here of, of what happened in the you know, 1920s Germany and uh, what's happening in this country now are have not gone unnoticed by myself or others, for sure. Is there also a black Christian nationalist movement? Is it just the other side of this story or there's a lot of similarities? There are similarities, and this is one of the things that I, I think is really important uh, to understand. The similarities come in the uh, the beliefs that black Christian nationalists and white Christian nationalists on the whole give when they're asked about the Bible or God or theology. If you give a survey and you ask the black Christian nationalists and the white Christian nationalists what they believe about God or scripture uh, or uh, certain uh, moral or ethical issues— Many times their answers line up, but the theology is, is in fact not the most important element here because when we zoom out, we ask not only about the politics, but we ask about the story of the nation. And when you ask the white Christian nationalists about the story of the nation, they're going to tell you two things. A, there was a time in the past when America was on track to implement God's special mission in the, in the world to play a, a prominent role in world history and to be a city on a hill. We have strayed from that and B we are apocalyptically close to losing our country. So we must act with intense urgency in order to make sure we can control our country and get it back to what it once was. Otherwise the apocalypse will come and we will be wiped off the face of the earth by China or by Russia or by someone else. The black Christian nationalist does not 
uh, on the whole, engage in that kind of nostalgia politics. Instead, they have a politics of hope, one that says the country has never lived up to its creed of liberty, equality, and uh, the pursuit of happiness for all of its citizens. It has never once offered that. But All it could, men are created equal. All, it has never once extended the, the idea that we're all equal to its policies and laws and its practice. But it could. And we are hopeful that it might, not just for Christians, not just for black people, but for all people, including our Jewish neighbors, our non-religious neighbors, our, uh, our, our Hindu neighbors, and so on and so forth. So our goal, if, if I'm Raphael Warnock and I listen to his, you know, and I'm preaching a sermon, the goal is for our country to live up to its, its founding for the first time, not to go back to a supposedly uh, uh, nostalgic era when it once was great. And that is the difference between the stories that the black Christian nationalists and the white Christian nationalists tell about our country. When you were immersed in the movement, what were some of the things you were taught that might shock outsiders? Or, or are we familiar with them all and just shrug some of them off? Well, I think some of the familiar tropes will be the, the mantra that this is a Christian nation, that it was built for and by Christian people, that our founders had in mind a Christian republic when they put together all of our documents, whether the Declaration of Independence or the Bill of Rights, uh, and so on. I think those kinds of mantras are familiar, but they should, they should I think, come into a, a kind of focus that's ever more scary, given uh, the fact that we're just about two years from an insurrection and the, the rising authoritarianism we see on the American right uh, in 2022. Some of the things that I think might shock people is just the ways that these claims go unfounded. Uh, and on and uncontested that in in these kinds of cultures there are authority figures such as pastors and leaders there are charismatic personalities and what they say is really what you believe and to challenge that is to risk being left out of the group to being put on the margins or being looked at somebody who's suspicious as causing division and maybe needs to uh, either be quiet or no longer be part of the flock one of the things that, uh, speaking of apocalypse, that I learned early on is that there was a very good chance that Jesus would return soon, and we had to do everything we could to convert as many people as, as possible. So I learned that uh, there was a chance that the new currency called the euro, if we remember back to the late 90s and the early 2000s when the euro was formed, was really the signal that a new world order was about to take take over uh, the globe, and, and we needed to be ready for the rise of the Antichrist. Hmm. I was told that soon we'd have chips implanted in our wrists and a barcode, and that that would really be a great sign that the mark of the beast was upon us and that we were going to be instituted into a new world order where Christians would be persecuted. I was told stories over wait, and wait, over and again. And the chips would make us do what we were told to do? Well, but they would also track us. They would also make sure that we were a number and not a person. They would make sure that we had real, no real freedom, no real independence, that uh, our ability to worship God would go by the wayside because we would have to worship a state that now took the place of the divine. That was the idea. Didn't you ask yourself while you were watching footage of the January 6th insurrection, I'm quoting, if I hadn't left evangelicalism, would I have been there? Uh, you also point out that you grew up with some of the people who were there. 
I did. And, you know, I think there's there's a couple things to say about all this. One, you know, I grew up in a place that was middle class and I had a lot of neighbors who were upper middle class. Uh, they and some of those neighbors were the ones who attended January 6th. The small business owner who has a second home, the uh, the independent uh, businessman who has uh, three cars and a and a cabin in the mountains and a boat. These were the folks from my hometown uh, that were January 6th. So I think that's that's important for people to kind of picture when they f- try to figure out who were some of the riders that were there two years ago. I did ask myself what I've been there because my, my neighbors and former church people, some of them at least, were there. But also I wondered, would I have been prone to the kinds of extremism that led many people to think that they had a God-ordained mission to overtake the Capitol in the name of Donald Trump uh, in order to reinstitute him as president. And one of the things that scares me, I'll be very honest, is that as much Christian nationalism as I ingested in the 90s and early 2000s, that was not a time when you heard for the outright call for uh, overturning elections. It was not a time when you heard uh, 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 that we should... uh, uh, enact violence against our political opponents. It was not a time when you heard about overthrowing the Constitution or uh, starting a new country or any hints in these ways. It was a time when, you know, certainly George W. Bush was a great candidate uh, for that era. But George W. Bush visited a mosque after 9-11, despite what he, he did in the ensuing months. What's my point? My point is, is if I had converted as a zealous young convert in 2019 rather than in 1995 would the uh, extremism that i would have been exposed to just by dint of attending my church and listening to the radio shows and the podcasts and reading the books that were part of that culture would they have convinced me that i should have been there doing my god-given duty by uh trying to overthrow the capital and i think for many of my neighbors and for many of my former church people, they either feel like they should have been there or they wanted to do everything they could to support the people that were there because that's what God wanted. And that's what scares me about uh, where we are today. There's a sense of community involved here. Oh, there's a huge sense of community. And, you know, this is the type of religious movement that demands that you give everything of yourself uh, when you're inside it. And what I mean by that is that you know, your relationships, your friendships, your romantic relationships, um, your sense of community is all invested in your church. Um, your sense of identity, uh, the people who bring you chicken soup when you have the flu, uh, the people that you raise your kids with, all of your friendships, uh, the way you manage your money, the way you vote, the way you engage community, it's all there. And so when you're someone like me who leaves at age 24, you're leaving your entire life and you realize that in order to do what you know is right, which is to leave this community and to, to, to believe and act uh, a different way, you're going to have to start your life completely over. And that's just really daunting. And it's really hard. And so that's not a justification for people being part of it by any means. But I hope if anyone listening is, is wondered to themselves, why would you ever stay or be part of this kind of thing? It's because, uh, Every aspect of who you are is invested in it. And so leaving it means you have to do the immense, daunting, heavy lift 
of reconstructing your entire life and self. I think that works important. I think people should do it. But I hope you can also see how how incredibly difficult that is as the years go by. Well, did you leave after you studied philosophy and theology at Oxford University? Uh, wasn't going to Oxford a kind of an odd thing for somebody in your situation? Very much. <laughs> and I'll say that uh, I already knew before I went to Oxford that I no longer fit in in this movement. I You're already uh, drifting been... away. Oh, very much so. But, you know, I have to say it's it's hard to drift away fully when you're a minister and you have the uh, the duty every uh, week to stand up in front of a flock of 200 or 2,000 people and provide spiritual guidance. Uh, I had teenagers who looked up to me. I had parents who called and said, my kid ran away. Can you help me find him? I had other parents who called and said, I think my kid's on drugs. Can you take him out to lunch and talk to them and see what's going on? Um, so it's very hard to find a means of of uh, figuring out what you actually believe and how you want to engage the world when those kinds of demands are on you. And so I'll be very honest, by the end of my time in, in ministry, I, I often stood up in front of the, the, the group and prayed and wasn't sure I still believed in God, uh, which was a pretty hmm. uh, terrifying place to be in in life. Sure. When I got to Oxford a couple months later uh, and I had the ability to read and, and think without any governance over, you know, myself uh, away from my hometown for the first time. Well, very soon thereafter, I, I kind of expanded into a much different way of life and a much different way of thinking. And, and here we are. Well, aren't there religious extremists in Britain as well? Are they there very are. different from the ones we have here? So I think some of the differences that I would, would comment on is that uh, there are uh, religious extremists uh, in most places. I think what's different about the UK case and the American case is a couple of things. Many fewer people in the UK are religious uh, these days uh, compared to the, the United States. Religion plays a much less prominent role in British politics. Um, there is uh, no sense that uh, the leader of the Tories or the Labour Party or any other needs to be a religious person in order to be a viable candidate. Um, the kinds of money that are pumped into religious communities uh, by by way of mega churches and uh, you know uh, para church organizations is much different and much diminished in the UK. So of course there are extremists, but the avenues for them to organize and to uh, influence the public square are are much uh, less diminished than they are in this country. And so I, I we also should just comment there are analogs to Fox News and Newsmax in the UK, but the BBC provides a kind of uh, stalwart for, uh, you know, the the public media scape in a way that makes those outlets even more fringe than they would be here, where Tucker Carlson is on every night and has the most viewers of anyone on cable news. But Boris Johnson, in many ways, uh, had similar views to Donald Trump. He did. And I think, you know, I, I think if we see Boris Johnson as a Trump analog, one of the things that I would argue is that what Boris Johnson did not have to do in order to get uh, to be prime minister was uh, what Trump did do, which was promise evangelicals Supreme Court seats, make sure to include them in his uh, high level discussions about policy to signal his favor for banning abortion in some some way, uh, his rhetoric of religious liberty, uh, his banning, uh, his desire to ban Muslims from the country, 
all of those things were red meat to the to the white Christian nationalists in the United States. And that's part of uh, the, the the kind of uh, landscape here in a way that I, I don't think is true for Boris Johnson and, and the UK case. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. conversation with Bradley Onishi. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, the book we've been discussing, Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. Just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's Give and then the number two WBAI.org or two one two two oh nine twenty nine fifty. But don't forget to make that fifty dollar donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large and we thank you very much. A return to Brad Onishi talking about his book Preparing for War, which is published by Broadleaf Books. He is a social commentator, scholar, writer, teacher, coach, and co-host of the Straight White American Jesus podcast, which ranks in the top 50 of politics shows on Apple's podcast charts, above uh, some pretty famous uh, podcast producers. Congratulations. Well, thank you. And some of those rankings go up and down. But uh, yeah, we're pretty proud of what we've been able to do as an indie show. And uh, we provide commentary on the religious right, on Christian nationalism. And we do so as people who were former ministers in the movement and uh, have lived it. But we're also scholars of religion, my co-host and I, Dan Miller. And so we, we, we study these things for a living. We see them in historical context, in sociological context, and, uh, and philosophical context. And so our bifocal approach is is kind of uh, what we think uh, kind of sets us apart from some of the other shows out there. And do you think that your audience is made up largely of people who are struggling with the things that you've been discussing? You know, what I've discovered is that our audience is is largely uh, two different uh, two different camps. One are people who have lived this and are emerging from it, and they're trying to gain some kind of perspective on their experience. Uh, how did my church become this way? What kind of movement was I caught up in? Uh, what stream have I been you know, going down for all of these years? How do I see that in a way that'll help me process it? There's also just so many folks who are concerned about the nature of American democracy, and they want some perspective on how uh, certain religious forces and certain extremist movements got to be so powerful and prominent. And that includes a lot of journalists and researchers and fellow academics who listen because uh, they want to gain that perspective as well. So we find that we kind of have uh, two two very different uh, sets of listeners, but uh, hopefully they both find something valuable in what we're up to. In your book, you trace the migration of many white Christians to Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming in what's known as the American Redoubt. Uh, why is that important about uh, to what you're writing about here, and uh, what led to it? What's been its result? 
Yeah, if I can give a little history on that. Please. Um, so I, I'm born and raised in Orange County, California, and I know that many people listening will uh, kind of have a vision of Orange County as the quintessential American suburb, uh, the place that uh, mostly white. You know, traditionally, uh, last for the last uh, 80 years, has been overwhelmingly white, has been wealthy, has been the place that people move to away from Los Angeles. Uh, and if we look at history there, uh, what we find is that the migration to Orange County was really spurred by the defense industry after World War II, that Boeing and other uh, huge aeronautical and, and defense stalwarts moved to Orange County. And so this this promise of great jobs and great weather and cheap living conditions drew millions to Orange County. So uh, between 1950 and 1970, you have about 1.2 come from outside to Orange County. Um, you have a sunbelt migration of people moving from the South and the Midwest to places like Phoenix and, and LA, but many of them to Orange County. Well, what this leads to is an Orange County that is 90% white, largely made up of white people from the Midwest and the South who now have carte blanche to kind of create the community uh, and the, uh, the politics that they want uh, without any barriers. They're away from some of those old cultural foundations that might have been on Main Street uh, in their hometown, the ethnic communities in Pittsburgh, the black communities in Baton Rouge. And so they create what becomes, to many historians of the mid-20th century, the epicenter of, of the new religious right, the John Birch Society, uh, Barry Goldwater, Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, John Wayne, Pat Boone, they all find in many ways their political and spiritual homes in Orange County. Well, over, yeah. No, go ahead. Well, over the last few decades here, Orange County has become much more diverse. Uh, you have an influx of uh, Asian American folks, you have an influx of Latino folks. And it now, if you look to the, the way elections have gone, they have uh, Orange County is now a purple place. Uh, in 2016, Orange County went for Hillary Clinton. There was a blue wave in Congress. Why is Orange County important to Idaho, you ask? Well, in my mind, it's because so many of the people I grew up with uh, in church and in school have moved to Idaho. I mean, I'm talking if I went to Boise right now, I could find probably 100 or more people from church or school that now live somewhere uh, in the state of Idaho. 80,000 Californians moved to Idaho in 2018 alone. Boise is the fastest growing metro area west of the Mississippi. What is drawing people to, to Idaho? Well, it's the same thing that drew them to Orange County. There's the promise of cheaper way of living, promise of more land and less congestion. There's the promise of a beautiful terrain. Yes, lakes and mountains in Idaho. But there's also the promise that Idaho is one of the few places left in the country where you have a 95% white uh, population. That's how Idaho charts. It is uh, not chock full of big cities. There are no Houstons in Idaho. There are no Atlantas. There are no Milwaukee's. You have only Boise, which is a pretty purple place uh, to say the least. And so you can create and recreate the kind of white Christian place 
that many who moved to Orange County almost a century ago now once envisioned. And, the, and some uh, of the most, yeah, sorry. And, and some of the other places uh, that he that uh, were proposed, Montana, Wyoming, all in the West, so, to some degrees also parts of Oregon and Washington. And this was uh, first proposed in 2011 by uh, the survivalist novelist and blogger James Wesley Rawls. Uh, what was he suggesting there? That uh, that people go to be with their own kind and create a new America. Yes, in essence, he he says that uh, you know, redoubt the American redoubt. Redoubt means refuge. It means stronghold. I love and the fact that the word doubt is in it. D o u b t. <laughs> That's right. And so, uh, it, for for Rawls, uh, the redoubt is a chance for separatism based on what he says is religious lines. Now, I'm not going to lie. I don't take that uh, uh, on its face because, again, uh, the places you've mentioned uh, are overwhelmingly white and there is a stunning lack of diversity there uh, in those places. So, I, you know, he may say that he wants a Christian separatism, but as somebody who lived this, I, uh, I know firsthand that Christian uh, separatism here it, it often includes racial and ethnic separatism. He calls for a separatism to a part of the country where Christians can build the society that they want free from the uh, infection of the federal government or other kinds of um, irritants. Uh, this is largely a movement of survivalists. It's preppers. It's people who are uh, anticipating the collapse of the United States. They're anticipating a second civil war, and they want to institute uh, at least some of them, a theocratic form of government. There is a former state representative uh, in from uh, Eastern Washington who uh, has a, a manifesto where he says that uh, you know all in, in this new theocratic government that will be formed, all of those who do not uh, submit to a godly form of life and are not willing to uh, do away with abortion and other things, well then the the action there is to kill all men. Uh, in in those cases, that's Chuck Baldwin. And it's not Chuck Baldwin, oh, in fact, because Chuck um, Baldwin, who's a pastor in the Redoubt movement, has said, "I believe personally that America is already under the judgment of God. It's not that judgment is coming; judgment is already here." And you know, Chuck Baldwin was actually an inspiration for John Wesley Rawls, and Chuck Baldwin is a is a great connector here historically because Chuck Baldwin was. Jerry Falwell's lieutenant in the moral majority in Florida going back to the 1980s. Well, he, somebody who once marched with Falwell and Pat Robertson and Billy Graham, he decided that America had become so corrupt and anti-Christian that he had to move his entire family and congregation to Idaho and the American Redoubt to basically start rebuilding the United States. This is a radical vision. It's a theocratic vision. And in my mind, it signals the kinds of movements uh, that often go under the radar, but are very much present in our country at the moment. My guest on today's Leonard Lopit at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org, is Bradley Onishi, O-N-I-S-H-I. His latest book, Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. Uh, Trump, Donald Trump is obviously not a very religious man. Why do you think he became such an important figure in all of this? I think there's two reasons. I think, one, uh, he was willing to give carte blanche uh, to 
the white Christians that held the, the keys to millions of votes. Uh, we've seen this in the past. Uh, Ronald Reagan, in many ways, made this kind of pact. But Ronald Reagan eventually backed off and kind of frustrated the religious right. Well, Donald Trump didn't. Donald Trump promised Supreme Court judges and he came through. Donald Trump wanted to build a wall. Uh, Donald Trump instituted uh, a Muslim ban uh, weeks after taking office. Uh, Donald Trump was willing to basically signal that every enemy of the white Christian nationalists was also his enemy. And so they saw in him somebody who would fight the fights that they wanted to fight. However, I think there's also a, a reason that that often goes unnoticed, and that is the fact that Donald Trump's non-religiosity was strangely a feature for the white Christian nationalists who supported him. Why? Because it meant that he was willing to do the fighting. He was willing to engage in the kinds of barbarism that somebody who might have been hindered by Christian virtue would not. If you elect Mike Pence or Ted Cruz, if you elect Marco Rubio, are they going to be as brutal to your enemies as Donald Trump is? It might be better to have a non-Christian man willing to destroy your non-Christian enemies in the name of God than it would be to have a godly man who is worried about being a godly man that will not implement the kinds of brutal and barbaric tactics that you see needed to destroy the other. And so I think that's one of the the really important aspects of Donald Trump's uh, rise with the religious right and Christian Trumpism in general. Do you think that the uh, recent, recent election results suggest that there's been something of a backlash in this country? I think the results are mixed. Uh, in some ways, I think many of us are breathing a sigh of relief. Uh, many of the, the Secretary of State candidates who were election deniers did not get elected. Um, those most uh, Trumpian candidates, whether they be Kerry Lake or Doug Mastriano, did not win. Um, well, however, well, Kerry Lake uh, still arguing the case. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'll continue to look, and if I find that she won along with the, the idea that uh, Dwight Eisenhower was a, a Soviet spy, then I'll I'll report back. But, um, uh, you know, so so those candidates did not win. And, and in many cases, uh, Trump endorsed candidates lost down the, down uh, the ticket and across the country. However, Ron DeSantis did win handily. And Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene and many others are still in Congress. And so I don't think it's a, a set of results that uh, signals a, a clear moving away from Trumpism as we've known it. Whether or not that means that Trump will continue to be the figurehead of that movement, uh, it, I think, is, is up for debate. But uh, someone like DeSantis is certainly doing his best to become the leader of Trumpism without Trump by going in, in certain cases even farther than Trump was willing to when it comes to migrants or vaccines or other things. And so um, I don't think that we should take away from the, the midterm results a, a clear mandate that uh, Trumpism is is gone forever. The subtitle of your book is The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. So do you have a sense of what comes next? You know, I, I think that one of the traps we can fall into is, uh, you know, people ask me about, well, is, there, is a civil war coming? Mm -hmm. And what I say is, if we imagine a civil war as North versus South, as these states versus those, a Mason-Dixon line in between, and a grand conflict, um, we might miss what is already happening 
uh, all around us, and we might miss the signals of what will continue to happen. So, for instance, in the last few weeks, we've had a power grid in a rural North Carolina town destroyed because somebody wanted uh, the, the drag queen story hour not to take place uh, at the local library. Uh, this past summer in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, we had Patriot Front uh, seconds. I mean, I interviewed people who were there seconds away from a massacre uh, at a pride event. Uh, we've had numerous instances of Proud Boys showing up to various events, uh, whether they be at libraries or brunches or other places, terrorizing people in a public square. We have certainly had the overturning of Roe, but we've had people who have called for a federal abortion ban, for the jailing and punishment of women uh, who uh, uh, undergo abortions or who help other women undergo abortions. We see what I think are little fires everywhere. And if we have a lens that only recognizes one grand conflict as a kind of civil war, then I think what we'll miss are these little fires that are showing us that uh, uh, the inflammation of violence in the streets is already happening, that we have domestic terrorism already uh, manifesting itself, and we don't have to wait for that. And I don't see that stopping when the likes of DeSantis and, and Green and Boebert and Gates and Gosar, along with Kevin McCarthy and others, continue to be the face of the GOP and continue to have the full-throated support of many white Christian communities across the country. Your politics are obviously on the left. Are you surprised to see how far you've moved from where you were when you were young? A little bit. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think you don't realize when you leave your religion, and, and in my case, leaving what I take to be a white Christian nationalist church, is that it's one thing to really reform your ideas about God and the divine and human beings and all of those dimensions. Another realization that you come to is that wrapped up in all of your ideas about God and the divine and human beings have been nationalisms, have been xenophobia, have been queerphobia, have been uh, uh, so many ways of thinking that are, in essence, hurtful or marginalizing. Anti-feminist. Feminist, yeah, 100%. And so um, you realize that leaving your religion means reforming your entire understanding of of the human condition and the public square. And so in some ways it's surprising, but I'll be honest, in some ways it's actually not. <laughs> well, we've run out of time, but uh, how can people access your podcast, Straight White American Jesus? Yeah, the podcast is anywhere uh, you get your, your podcast. So Apple, Google, Spotify, mm -hmm. and uh, we, we're an indie show, so we, could all, we can use any support we can, reviews and so on. And uh, it just helps us out immensely. So I uh, appreciate that. And I thank you so much for being on our show today to talk about your latest book, Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. It's from Broadleaf Books. Good luck. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for great questions. I really appreciate it. 
And that brings us to the end of our show, alas. My great thanks to our executive producer, Keziah Glow, and to our audio engineer, Reggie Johnson, for all of the important work that they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. And our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available, as is Bradley Onishi's, on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the station coming to you. We find ourselves a little behind on paying the rent and paying for our transmitter tower. Um, And we hope that you, our listeners, uh, will uh, make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with to help us get through and also to keep this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Um, you can do that by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and the number 2 WBAI.org. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique, in-depth content information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Preparing for War, The Extremist History of Fight, Christian Nationalism, and What Comes Next by Bradley Onishi. So why not make that call right now to 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for 10, 15, 25, however many dollars a month you can afford. And uh, that allows us to plan for the future. And we'll say thank you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. Either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopate at Large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on the show by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. We hope you can join us on Monday when my guest will be M. Chris Fabricant discussing his new book, Junk Science and the American Criminal Justice System. We'll see you then. Have a great weekend. Thank you.